In the fall of 2006, high school junior Cassie Joe's daughter was house-sitting for her aunt and uncle in Bannock County, Idaho, when she found herself trapped in the middle of a real-life horror movie. I'm Chelsea May, and this is Exhibit May. After school on Friday, September 22, 2006, Anna Starter drove her 16-year-old daughter Cassie to her aunt and uncle Allison and Frank Contreras' home at Whispering Cliffs Drive, just a few miles from their own residence in Pocatello, Idaho. Cassie was a responsible, trustworthy, straight-A student who agreed to house it and take care of their three cats and two dogs until Sunday while they're out of town. The 1,996-square-foot home had four bedrooms, three baths, and a 1.83-acre lot. The secluded area was dark, quiet, and remote, so Cassie invited her boyfriend of five months, Matt Beckham, to keep her company, who arrived at 6 p.m. just before sunset. The two decided to make some popcorn and cuddle up on the couch in the living room while enjoying the movie Kill Bill Volume 2. But it wasn't from lack of trying, I can tell you But their date abruptly ended just 30 minutes into their movie around 6.30 p.m. when there was a knock on the door. It was 16-year-old Brian Lee Draper and Tori Michael Adamchik who were classmates of the couple. Cassie was unaware that Matt had invited them and although visibly disappointed, she put on a smile and kindly invited them in. She gave the boys a quick tour of the house before the group settled in the living room and continued watching the movie. About halfway through the film, Brian and Tori got up and announced that they were bored and wanted to watch a movie at their local theater instead. The boys promptly got up, left the house around 10 p.m., and drove 10 minutes to the AMC theater to watch the movie Pulse. Cassie shrugged at their sudden exit and was happy that she and Matt were finally getting some alone time again and continued on their night snuggling up on the couch while finishing their movie. Just 15 minutes later, they were quickly interrupted once again this time by loud, odd noises coming from the basement. Cassie got spooked as Matt laughed, holding her tight, telling her that she had nothing to worry about. Feeling comforted, she brushed it off, knowing her mind was only playing games with her. Suddenly, the power went out. The couple was now left sitting in a pitch black house. Terrified, Cassie refused to check on the circuit box located in the basement and wouldn't allow Matt to either, who was now also spooked and agreed not to go downstairs. He continued comforting her as they sat on the couch, silently holding each other, hoping the power would soon be restored. After patiently waiting a while, some of the lights turned back on. But just as he began to feel a sense of relief, one of the dogs started growling at the door which led to the basement stairs. As fear set in, Matt quickly called his mom to tell her the situation and asked if he could stay the night to take care of his girlfriend. However, his mom didn't think it was a good idea and said that she would pick him up that evening as planned. 
When Matt's mother, Sherry, arrived at 10.30 p.m., he explained the situation again, hoping to change her mind. He restated how weird noises were coming from the basement, that the lights were turning on and off, and how the dog behaved strangely. But once again, Sherry refused Matt's request and was firm on taking him home, but offered Cassie to stay at their house that evening and would bring her back the next day. Although terrified, Cassie kindly passed on the offer and chose to stay the night alone as she felt responsible for the house and the animals. Matt hugged and kissed her and said he would call her when he got home. On his way home, he called Tori, hoping to meet up with him and Brian. Tori answered his cell, speaking in a whisper that Brian could barely hear. So he hung up, assuming that the boys were still at the movie theater. When Matt arrived home at 12.15 a.m., he called Cassie as promised, but there was no answer. Thinking she had fallen asleep, Matt went to bed that night and tried another 15 times the following morning on Saturday, September 23rd, but still had no luck. Anna's daughter, Cassie's mother, also contacted her multiple times throughout the day and couldn't get a hold of her daughter. Matt spent that evening with Tori vocalizing his concerns about Cassie's sudden silence and asked him if he could drive them to the Whispering Cliffs residence to check up on her. Tori responded by saying that he unfortunately didn't have enough gas and that he had nothing to worry about. On Sunday, September 24th, everyone's concerns grew as there was still no word from Cassie. At 1.15 p.m., Allison, Frank, and their 13-year-old daughter finally returned home from their trip to Wyoming and pulled into their driveway. As they unpacked the car, the 13-year-old was first to approach the foot of the stairs that led to their front door and found broken glass on the ground. She then walked up the stairs and found it odd that the door was left open. As she entered the home and walked into the living room, she screamed in horror. Moments later, Frank ran in from behind and immediately ran back outside, screaming that a dead body was on the floor. Allison dropped her things and ran up the stairs while calling 911. As she entered the living room, she was confronted by a scene straight out of a horror movie. Blood was everywhere, on the carpet, the furniture, and the walls. And on the blood-smeared floor, next to the couch, lay the deceased body of Cassie Jo Stoddart in her star-studded pajama pants and a wide spaghetti strap tank top. As Allison frantically screamed, the 911 dispatcher instructed her to attempt CPR. What's going on? Let me get your automatic stay on the line. The trio waited outside until Cassie's mom and stepdad arrived on the scene, where they had the difficult task of informing them that their daughter had been brutally murdered. About 15 minutes later, at 1.55 p.m., the police arrived and began their investigation. It was clear that Cassie had been dead for about two days before the discovery. 
Medical examiner Dr. Scummel stated that Cassie had been brutally stabbed 30 times in her chest, neck, back, and abdomen, and believed that a strike to the right ventricle of her heart was likely the wound that ended her life. According to forensic pathologist Dr. Charles Garrison, two different knives were used, one of which was a non-serrated blade and one a serrated blade. This made them believe that it was likely there had been two killers instead of one. Apart from the scene in the living room, the rest of the house appeared undisturbed and the animals had been locked in the bathroom unharmed. All valuable items were untouched and nothing was missing which ruled out burglary as a motive. There were no signs of forced entry and the attack seemed very personal, suggesting Cassie likely knew her killer or killers and let them into the house. As the news spread amongst family and friends, suspicions immediately fell on Cassie's boyfriend, Matt Beckham, who was the last known person to see her alive. Investigators promptly brought him in for questioning and he was eager to help in any way he could, giving a detailed timeline of how he spent that Friday evening and with whom. He told detectives that he had arrived at the house shortly before Brian and Tori and how the four of them watched Kill Bill until their two friends left for the movie theater. He continued explaining all the weird things that followed and how he and his mother had asked Cassie to stay at their house that night, but she refused to. With a combination of his timeline, phone records, the alibi from his parents, and his cooperation, detectives were confident that he wasn't involved in Cassie's murder in any way. Instead, they shifted their focus to Brian Draper and Tori Adamchik. Brian Michael Draper was born on March 21, 1990 to Pam and Carrie Draper and was raised in Utah. Growing up, he was known to be an outcast and was often bullied by his classmates due to having a stutter. This led Brian to have a dark mindset from a young age, which consisted of writing about suicide, hurting others, and how no one knew that he was sick in the head. He was also fascinated with the Columbine shooting and idolized the killers Eric Harris and Dylan Claboyd because they represented the outcast like Brian himself. In eighth grade, he and two other boys were caught planning a school shooting of their own. However, nobody took their dark obsession seriously, but thankfully they never went through with it. Tori Michael Adamchik was born on June 14, 1990 to his parents Shannon and Sean Adamchik. He was a Pocatello native and was described as a kind and loving child. Unlike Brian, Tori had never been in any trouble growing up or showed any signs of behavioral issues. He had a passion for movies and started writing scripts and making movies at the early age of just 10 years old. Eventually, Tori met Brian at Pocatello High School in 2006 and their shared interests in movies quickly made them bond and became close friends. The pair began writing a script together for a film based on the popular Scream franchise, in which a mass killer targets teenagers taunting or threatening them before stabbing them to death. No one knew their dark obsession would eventually become their real-life horror movie. Hello, this is a collect call from an inmate from the Banner County Jail. I met Tori Adamchik and... Sophomore year, he started talking about the movie Scream, how it'd be cool to actually do a Scream-type crime. And I was like, oh, okay. He's like, have you ever, you know, thought about that? Not really. I mean, I've thought about other things, like, uh, you know, Columbine. Uh, and he really wasn't into that. And I was like, 
well, I could either be alone or I could uh, join his plan and uh, be with him and, and, you know, not be alone. High school is a very hard time. I had no idea who I was. I had no idea where I fit in among my peers. And I thought that I was a nobody at my high school. And I, I wanted to be known. On September 25th, 2006, Brian and Tori were brought to the station and led to separate rooms for questioning. Both teenagers told the same story and claimed that they were at the house at Friday night because they thought it would be like a house party. But after realizing that Cassie and Matt were having a movie night, they left. The boys explained that it was more exciting to go to the theater than stay in and watch one at the house and said they had tickets to prove they went to see the film Pulse. However, when detectives asked about the movie's plot, they were unable to answer. Over the following days, investigators pressed harder and Brian and Tori's story started to change. On the evening of September 26, investigators brought Brian in for his second interview, who now said they had spent the night breaking into cars and went to a movie to cover that up. Police weren't convinced and brought him in again the next day for a third interview after investigators went to his residence and discovered a knife sheath under the bed. Brian appeared quiet and anxious as the pressure started taking a toll on him. The teenager began sobbing as he recounted the events of that Friday evening, admitting that he and Tori had unlocked the basement door so they could return later that evening to prank Cassie and Matt. The two boys then told the couple they were leaving for the movie theater when in reality, they never left the property. The two teens changed into black clothing, put on gloves, scary white masks with fake blood, and carried real knives, which he said made it more realistic. After changing, they entered the basement through the unlocked door and waited for the right moment to begin their so-called prank, imitating the slasher movie Scream. They started making loud noises and messing with their circuit box, turning the power off, hoping to lure their two victims downstairs and scare them. After realizing their plan wasn't working, they turned some lights back on and eventually heard Matt leave the house. They turned the lights on and off again repeatedly, convinced Cassie would finally go downstairs, but she never did. Instead, she stayed upstairs in the living room and fell asleep on the couch while watching a movie alone. Tori became highly agitated and impatient, so the pair made their way upstairs and slammed the closet door, startling and waking her up. Brian claimed that he thought it was still a joke until he realized that Tori was repeatedly stabbing Cassie with a knife until her screams were silenced and her struggles faded to nothing. He denied being a part of the brutal attack and stated that Tori had threatened to kill him earlier that day if he spoke of the upcoming incident. And in the last ditch effort to save himself, he agreed to show the investigators where the pair hid the evidence. The young teen led several detectives and his father to the Black Rock Canyon area where he said they buried their evidence. From there, they recovered almost two dozen items, including a pair of black boots, fingerless gloves, two masks, two daggers, two knives, one of which was serrated with blood on it, a burn note, and a Sony videotape. At that moment, Brian was arrested and taken to the Bannock County Jail while Tori returned to the Pocatello Police Station to undergo his second interview. This time, declaring that he and Brian had gone to the house to watch a portion of a movie, then left at 10pm to break into cars. 
and at 11.30 p.m. went to his house and didn't leave again for the remainder of the night. Detectives then informed the teenager about the evidence they had uncovered at Black Rock Canyon and told him that he needed to be honest about what had happened that night. Tori froze in disbelief and quickly asked for an attorney. The following day, on September 28th, Brian was interviewed for the fourth time while investigators pushed to find out how he fit into the murder. And once again, his story changed. Now admitting to stabbing Cassie four times in the legs and chest, but claimed that Tori was threatening him to do so because according to Tori, Cassie was going to die anyway. Tori, however, claimed that the stabbing was all Brian's idea. He insisted that he thought they were filming a slasher movie like Scream just for fun and never intended to kill anyone. He said he was too scared to go upstairs when they were in the basement, but when he did, Brian was already there and had stabbed Cassie to death. Even though both boys turned on each other and tried their best to downplay their part in the brutal murder, their videotape recording recovered at Black Rock Canyon showed quite a different story. Brian and Tori considered themselves budding filmmakers, mainly interested in making documentary-style films. They were the stars of their own movies going around documenting their everyday lives. And as investigators examined the camera, they discovered the disturbing truth of what the two boys' evil intentions really were that Friday night of September 22, 2006. The video starts on a rainy evening of September 21st, 2006 at around 8 p.m. with Brian sitting in the passenger seat narrating their immediate plan while filming Tori driving his car. We found our victim and sad as it may be, she's our friend. But you know what? We all have to make sacrifices. Our first victim is going to be Cassie, daughter, and her God, friends. turn your brights off, asshole. Well, we'll find out if she has friends over. She's going to be alone in a big, dark house out in the middle of nowhere. How perfect can you get? I, I mean, like, holy shit, dude. I'm horny just thinking about it. Hell yeah. So we're going to fucking kill her and her friends, and we're going to keep moving on. I heard some news about Kirsten. She's going to be home alone from 6 to 7, so we might kill her, then drive over to Cassie's thing, and scare the shit out of them, and kill them one by fucking one. After confirming Cassie Jo Stoddart was her first victim, Brian and Tori went to school the next day on September 22, 2006, where they filmed Cassie introducing her to the film. The boys then skipped class and used the study hall where they told the camera they were writing their plan and death list that would take place later that same day. That evening, the boys headed to see Cassie and Matt at the Whispering Cliffs residence where they checked out the house and unlocked the back doors. At 9.30pm, they returned to their vehicle and proceeded to record before heading back to the house to commit the ultimate crime of murder. We're here in his car. The time is 9 50, September 22nd, 2006. Um, unfortunately, we have the grueling task of killing our two friends, and they are right in that house just down the street. We just talked to them. We were there for an hour. But we checked out the whole house. We know there's lots of doors. There, there's lots of places to hide. Um, I locked the back doors, that's all locked. Now we just gotta wait, and um, we're, we're really nervous right now, but you know, we're ready. We're listening to the greatest rock band We've been waiting for this for a long time. 
Lloyd. Before we commit the ultimate crime of murder. We waited for this for a long time. A long time. We'll stay tuned. Shortly after they fled the murder scene at 11.31 p.m., the boys are seen back in their car, fueled with adrenaline, celebrating the fact that they had just murdered their friend. I just killed Cassie. We just left her house. This is not a fucking joke. I stabbed her in the throat and I saw her lifeless body just disappear. Dude, I just killed Cassie. Oh, fuck. That felt like fucking real. Uh, I mean, it went by so fast. Shut the fuck up. We gotta get our act straight. Okay. I have uh, what they call a flashbulb images of that. She's breathing hard and, and her eyes are open. And she's looking off someplace else. And uh, and then I, I remember uh, Tony, like, she wasn't screaming, but in my head I could hear that. And I know she she screamed before it happened to her. And uh, in my memories I have, she, she's screaming. After watching the tape and with the overwhelming evidence, the police were confident that this wasn't a fun prank or accident, but a cold-blooded premeditated murder. DNA testing also showed that the blood on the items recovered at Black Rock Canyon was that of Cassie Jo Stoddart and that Tori Adamchik's DNA was discovered on one of the masks. Brian's trial began in early April 2007 and Tori started at the end of May 2007. Both their lawyers tried to make the video inadmissible in court, but they failed. The prosecution in both trials said that Brian and Tori were after fame and notoriety, which is why they had the urge to kill. On April 17, 2007, Brian Draper was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder in the first degree. And two months later, on June 8th, Tori Adamchik was also found guilty on both charges. On August 21st, the same year, the two were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 30 years of conspiracy to commit murder. I want to uh, have a chance at life. I understand that, uh, you know, Cassie can't. She's dead, and not anything is going to change that. You know, I did something terrible, and, you know, and the, the, there has to be consequences for that. You know, everything we do in life, you know, always consequences. While both boys appealed their convictions, Brian seemed to have accepted his punishment while Tori and his family were in total denial. They fought vigorously to appeal his conviction throughout the years, saying it was unfair that he was tried as an adult despite being 16 years old at the time. As of 2023, Tori Adamchik and Brian Draper remained serving their time at Idaho State Correctional Institution. Hello, this call is subject to monitoring and recording. When it did happen, I was just too shocked to do anything, and I just ran from it and hid from it, and I made a lot of mistakes. I don't know, I just think, I look at myself now, and I think how stupid I was at 16, and I just think how I feel like I'm paying for somebody else's mistakes at this point. It's a hard thing to admit, you know. I killed Cassie Sauter. I, I stabbed a 16-year-old girl to death. That's, that's pretty hard to say. I think the first memory I have of her is uh, 
we were joking around in class and uh, she was smiling and that's uh, the, the image I have in my mind now is I you know can't get that out of my mind and uh, man it's hard to talk about Despite their ongoing appeals claiming wrongful conviction, Cassie's loved ones continue to endure the real nightmare. Frank and Allison Contreras had only been living in their dream home at Whispering Cliffs Drive for about a year and a half when their lives were turned upside down. The emotional toll hit their family hard and everyone fell into deep depression. Allison lost her job, Frank turned to alcohol, and their 13-year-old daughter attempted suicide. After returning to the house once it was no longer a crime scene, Frank said they tried making the place feel like home again by painting the walls and replacing the carpet, but nothing could cover the painful memories that continued to linger. They knew they would never again experience the joy the house once brought them and put their home on the market. But despite the low asking price, no one showed interest for quite a few years due to the stigma attached to it. Finally, in 2015, the Contreras sold the property. According to Andrew Stoddart, Cassie's brother and closest confidant, their family keeps their bond strong by concentrating on the positives rather than the negatives, despite the constant remembrance of their devastating loss. Cassie's loved ones will always remember her as a kind, intelligent, and driven figure who served as a role model, displaying a passion for art, an eagerness for adventure, and a fondness for laughter. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast.